Welcome to the Heart of Leaders podcast, where each week we'll be exploring the frontiers of leadership with those who lead from the heart and put their people first, knowing that ultimately all team accomplishments are driven by people. They know that when they take care of their people, their people will take care of customers, lower costs, and drive customer loyalty and company profitability. These leaders believe that for most companies, culture trumps strategy. And culture starts with how you treat your people and how they treat each other. I'm your host, Rick Barrera, head of faculty for the Heart of Leaders training program in Denver, Colorado, where we teach extraordinary leaders how to build and lead high-performance teams who can consistently deliver exceptional results. Welcome back to the Heart of Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Rick Barrera. Today, I'll be interviewing Heart of Leaders faculty member Todd Musselman, one of the most impactful personal development gurus I have ever known. Todd sneaks up on you with his wisdom because he has this very humble, authentic, laid-back, aw-shucks manner. But when you least expect it, he shoots his wisdom straight into your heart. He's a little ninja about it, but it's very effective. I'm very proud to call Todd a friend. Todd, welcome to the Heart of Leaders podcast. Rick, I'm thrilled to be here. I'm so excited to be part of Heart of Leaders program, and uh, thanks for having me. So, Todd, I want our listeners to hear your story because you grew up with what some might call a life of privilege, but I don't think you were aware of it at the time. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I really hadn't considered that before, honestly, until this question came up today. You know, for me, I guess my take on that is if privilege is growing up in a loving environment, then I was definitely privileged. From a monetary perspective, we went in and out of privilege. We were snow farmers. Uh, my my dad owned a business directly related to the ski industry. And when it snowed, we, we had money. And when it didn't, we ate chip beep on toast for months on end. And I'm not kidding. Um, some of the lean years, you know, they call it shit on a shingle in the military. And I know why they call it that. Because having it like seven nights in a row, it got to be old. But there were, there were literally periods of my, my youth when that was all we could afford, that and pasta, so we ate a lot of both of it. But I'm grateful for that experience. I, I think that scarcity is, um, is as valuable as abundance in some ways. It, it certainly provides humility, which I think we all uh, lived inside of a lot as a family. Uh, I consider myself extremely privileged in that I know I've always been loved. Yeah, so your family had a business, and the business became quite successful. It did. You know, my dad chugged along at two, two and a half million dollars in sales for literally, I think, about 15, 20 years. And then my sister joined in a very reluctant way. She she needed a job. And I don't think my sister ever envisioned herself as a salesperson. But my dad needed somebody to go see a customer one day. And the rest is history, as they say. I, in, in all my walks of life, I don't think I've ever met a more effective uh, salesperson than my sister. No kidding. She's phenomenal and and then one by one we all joined in very much the same way it was the last thing any of us thought we would do is work for the family business in fact i think we all swore we would never do that <laughs> but we all ended up there and out of that became uh, a pretty magical experience for a very long time about 20 year run we grew the business from 2 million uh in roughly you know 1986 to about 26 million by the time uh, 2007 rolled around, so pretty phenomenal growth. And each of my siblings added a different key component to the business, and we all had our roles. 
And I think the most memorable thing about being in business with my family is just the camaraderie and the love. And uh, when you walked into our building, you could you literally could feel the love in the building. I know it's uh, odd to talk about in, in a corporate environment, but I really am a big proponent of uh, bringing the word love into a culture. I think it's um, it's probably the most important part of a culture. So we had that business for a long, long time. Uh, my dad uh, had it, started it, and we had it for 42 years. And definitely by the end, it provided all of us jobs and definitely some privilege for sure, Rick. No question. And um, then? And then. And then uh, <laughs> I'll never forget, I was driving back from Breckenridge to my home in Steamboat, and my uh, brother Mark, who is the CEO, called me. Uh, and there was something in Mark's voice. I, I knew that something was awry. And I said, Mark, is everything okay? And he said, well, uh, I'm not sure. Wells Fargo called today, and, and they put us in special assets. And me never having any exposure to the banking world, I thought that sounded pretty pretty good. Like, that's really great to be in special You're assets. Special. Well, obviously. <laughs> yeah, we're special. What's wrong with that, Mark? Yeah, obviously, that's uh, I learned a lot about what special assets. It's one of the most ironically misnamed monikers on the planet. Uh, so, you know, in that one phone call, all of my family members, uh, we all dove off the cliff of being owners of our spirit, of our life, of this amazing company, right into the victim mindset and in a huge way. And uh, we all had our own personal journeys into the world of uh, that uh, I would call it hell. Uh, lots of uh, lots of challenges inside of that. You know, my my brother in particular, Mark, and my dad, the founder, really had a hard time. But certainly, I did too. I I spent uh, a lot of time stuck. Uh, as I like to say, one of the, the big uh, indicators of stuckness, so to speak, is this mindset: I don't know what to do, so I won't do anything. And believe me, Rick, I did a lot of nothing for a long time. For the better part of three months, I just sat in the discomfort of my home, you know, and I actually, I did do a couple things that might sound familiar to some of the listeners on this. Uh, when stressed, I started to drink more uh, alcohol and uh, I, I medicated myself with YouTube. Uh, I watched so many fly fishing videos, uh, specifically of New Zealand. You just can't even, it's, it's mind boggling, like hours on end. Uh, I was paralyzed by fear. Uh, Fear of the unknown, fear of failure, and, and ultimately, I guess, the fear of not being good enough to figure out how to, to right the ship. And um, so this went on for a while, and, you know, our, our family had uh, weekly phone calls to talk about the condition of the company, but more about really just about commiserating with each other and making sure we were okay. And uh, that, that went on for quite a while, and, and every conversation usually ended the same way. We would always ask Mark, my brother, who was running the show, you know, how can we help you? And Mark would always say the same thing. You know, I got it. Just do what you're supposed to do. And of course, he didn't know we weren't doing anything or I wasn't anyway, <laughs> except feeling very sorry for myself. And uh, so this went on for a while. And then one of those phone calls, uh, my my brother um, showed some signs of cracking and, and I knew he was in big trouble and I, I knew he was in really big trouble. And so in that day, I didn't ask my my brother, how I could help him, I decided that I would get in my car and drive the three hours to Denver and, and finally uh, be useful at some level. And so um, I spent the next uh, three months, every Monday to Friday, driving down to Denver. And my only goal was to uh, to be with my brother through the hardship. Uh, 
he was really up against it. You know, three three different times, Rick, I, I walked into his office and and he was coiled up on the on the floor in a ball in a fetal position. And and quite honestly, I've never seen anybody in so much emotional pain. It was it was really hard to watch and quite um, scary. I almost called 911 twice. And so we went through, you know, this whole thing. And, and as it turned out, you know, we, we lost the company. And, and during that period, I, I kept saying this, these two things over and over again, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to my family. And life isn't fair. And man, did I believe both of those. I mean, to the core, I really believe that were true. And, and so we, we ended up losing the company. We lost everything. Um, my parents lost their retirement. We lost our jobs. We went from 212 employees down to 110. Uh, Mark and I sat across the table and let go 110 beautiful human beings, one after another, people we loved. And that was the hardest part for sure. And uh, so we lost a lot of employees. Uh, we lost everything. Uh, and maybe the most important thing was we lost um, our identity. And to your point about privilege, you know, you don't grow up building a business for uh, as long as we did and not have it be part of who you are. And I think one of the, the biggest missings for us is, you know, who are we without this company and, and what do we do now? And so, you know, the, the wildest thing about this whole thing is if Wells Fargo came up to me today and said, you know, gosh, you can have it all back. Uh, you can have your parents' retirement back. You can rehire your friends. You can have all the money you lost. You can have your jobs back. You can have it all back except for one thing. We get to keep your experience. You know, Rick, there's just no way I would make that trade. No way. Um, because I learned so much from that experience. Um, we all did. We all got so much from it. And now we all say, no, no, this isn't the worst thing. This was the best thing that ever happened to our family. Wow. And, and I really mean that. Yeah. And without question, we all do, including my brother Mark, or maybe especially my brother Mark. And to me, that's one of the primary challenges of life is, you know, lots of big things happen to us and and some really hard things. And, and certainly people listening have had a lot harder than that happen to them. And for me, the, the perspective is, so what do we do? You know, I, I think it's pretty simple to distill it down to really a, a couple choices that we can either use it for our suffering or, or our upliftment. And for a long time, I suffered over it, but shifted it into upliftment. And when I did, it, it just felt so good. You know, the very first time I put my foot in the car is when I, when I kind of emerged back out of the victim mindset into the ownership mindset, which is really the two you know, mindsets that I do a lot of work with. And for so long, I was reacting to life and, and I felt that I didn't have any control. And that's, that's emblematic of the victim mindset. And then, then I started creating some action and, and some, I made a difference. Uh, and all of a sudden I, I was owning my life. I was creating outcomes. And, and I think that's what the difference is. You know, when we're in the victim mindset, we tend to react to life and when we're on the ownership side, we're creating our life through intention and, and action and purpose, and it just feels so much better. There's nothing wrong with being on the victim side, but it just feels so much better to be on the ownership side. So out of that whole thing, uh, I'm so grateful. I'm grateful for the experience of going through bankruptcy. No kidding. I learned so much about businesses. I like to say to some people that <laughs> are in the, in the running their business, you don't know how to run a business until you lost one. And uh and I think if, if you look at, you know, just the history of a lot of these amazing leaders that, that you work with, a lot of them have indeed lost businesses in their past. And, yep. and every one of them that's in that group that you lead, they've used it for their upliftment, not their suffering. 
and yet we know people that are still holding on to that suffering and and I and I'm just so you know, I'm so torn by watching that happen with people who just they can't they just well, can't choose to out of that. Yeah. Well, it's it's fear. It's just you know fear it is, is overwhelming. It's overwhelming yeah. fear. And I know we have listeners who are in that place right now. So does it matter what action they take? To me, it doesn't. Honestly, it's just literally doing something. You know, again, being part of something bigger than myself is what lifted my spirit. The moment I put my focus on something other than my own misery, in specifically in this case on Mark and his well-being, I didn't. I didn't. It, it just lifted me out. I was now. I had a purpose. I had something to to shoot for. It was so so uplifting. And so, if if there is anybody on this uh, listening on this call that is not mindset you know my experience would say take an action do something take that focus off your own pain and put it onto something bigger than yourself and, and and my experience would say that will propel you out of the victim mindset and back into the ownership mindset which is where we're meant to be we're meant to create our lives not react to life at least in my experience so you feel like that was the turning point was just choosing out of it really well it's funny because you know of my i have you know, four siblings and my parents were all involved in the bankruptcy. I was the first one out of jail by a long way. And it wasn't because I had any special talents or any awareness or wisdom. I was just the first one to actually do something. The rest of my siblings and my parents, they, they just stayed in the misery and the reaction of it. They just kept reacting to what the bank was doing. They kept reacting to, you know, the whole thing. And, and, and I, 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 it was just blind luck. I just heard something in Mark's voice that said he needs help. And he's in big trouble, like, if I'm being honest, probably suicide kind of trouble. He was that bad. It was really bad. And and so I was just called to action, you know, so it was that simple. Just doing something was definitely the first time I put my foot in the car. I was out for sure. I could feel it. Literally, as I was driving to Denver, I'm not kidding. Me. I just felt lighter. I can't explain yeah. it. That's exactly what happened. And And, you know, the other thing that happened in that drive, which was pretty magical, and this is what gets in the way of not getting out of the mindset is I, I, I finally moved into accepting what is. And what I mean by that is that our, our company was going, we were going to lose the company. And, and accepting what is to me means simply that, you know, your, your life, your, your business, whatever that is, is exactly as it should be in this moment because it can't be any other way. And, and you're the cause in, in the matter of that being that way. And, and I really put my arms around me being the cause of us losing the business. Like I really took it on that I was the cause of the matter. And that was very helpful. For a long time, I blamed people. I blamed the bank. I blamed our board. At some level, I blamed our CFO. I, of course, I never took responsibility myself for the condition of our company, even though it was up to us seven to really uh, create or, or not the, the outcome of that business and and once i actually got that of course i was i was in all those meetings it could have i could have spoken my my voice much louder i just accepted and i didn't say anything played small and and so i was the cause of the matter of the bankruptcy and, and you know the the way i look at it is and if i was talking to my siblings i would hope they would say the same thing that they were the cause of the matter because that's where freedom comes from really getting that i caused it at least for me and um you know, it's easy to blame. It's not so easy to take responsibility. So did, were you aware at the time when you were having this transition? Were you able to, like, articulate that or talk to your family about the fact that 
you know, helping others was a turning point for you? You know, I, Rick, I would love to say that I had that awareness. I didn't. Um, no, you know, I did have a really interesting interaction with my mom. You know, I was staying with them when I went down to stay with Mark, when I went down to assist Mark. And my mom was watching me for, you know, the first two or three weeks. And finally, one day she came up and said, Todd, I've got this really crazy question to ask you. Um, mom, what's that? She said, well, I know this sounds crazy, but are you, it seems like you're having fun right now. Like you're, you're sort of enjoying this. And I, and I looked at her and I was kind of stunned by the question, but then I said, well, mom, I, I kind of hate to admit this, but you know what? I am, I am actually having fun. It's so fun to be part of something bigger than myself. And it's so miserable to be in the victim mindset. And I couldn't articulate that's what I was in, but that's what I was saying to my mom. And and so that's as close as I got to saying that, you know, being part of something bigger than yourself is really the way to take yourself out of your own misery. But I, I, I didn't impart that on anybody else. If I'm, I wish I could say I did. That kind of lesson didn't come to me until later, until I started doing the work I am doing now with, you know, leadership development. So I didn't see the true benefit until now. You know, the other key component to all this, which I did know about, because my family had done a lot of work with counselors and, and I had done some trainings, but I think the, the, the other profound learning in all of this is that, you know, the bankruptcy in, it, in and of itself doesn't mean anything. It doesn't have any meaning. It, it's just not, it's meaningless. What matters is the meaning that I put on it. And at first I made it mean it was the worst thing that ever happened to my family. And then I made it mean it was the best thing. But neither one of those are true. They're not true. Like there's no reality to that. But what matters is what. But if I put it as the worst, then that's what I'm going to get. But if I if I make it mean it was the best thing that ever happened to my family, then I can create from there, and and I can create that mentality that this was a great thing for our family. And so, to me, that's the key of life. Like things happen to us, and then we get to choose what we make it mean about us. Initially, we almost always go to suffering, but then there's that upliftment thing. So. That, that was a big takeaway for me, acceptance and, and really getting that I can make this, me, this experience mean anything I want about myself. And, and like you said, you know, the big fear that was in the way for me, especially initially, was I wasn't good enough. That was the fear. And to me, that's the fear in the human condition is I'm not enough. You're the only person who yeah. felt like they're not enough. Right. <laughs> you know, and when we're feeling that way, it doesn't feel so good. And, you know, I spent a long time languishing in that world of I'm not enough. And, and I'm not a good provider for my family. I'm not a good sibling. I'm I just everything. I'm just, I'm just not enough. And it's a, it's a really crappy feeling. So um, that's the fear that drives us, I think. Yeah. And everybody's got it. There's, there's nobody listening today who doesn't have that fear that they're not enough in some way, shape, or form. I've yet to meet somebody that isn't driven by that, honestly. Like, they want to answer that question, am I good enough? And, and and my experience says the ironic part is that that question has no answer. Who could answer it for us? You know, but that's a much longer conversation that you and I might have in another podcast. But yeah, it was the fear of not being good enough that really caused a lot of pain for me and my siblings and my parents. And kids at the time too, right? I had three kids and um, yeah, and, and I was so checked out. You talk about being 50 miles away from being present with anybody in my life. You know, I, I stopped doing the things I love to do and I stopped being present with the ones I loved. And, and you combine those two things. Like I stopped fishing. I stopped playing music. I stopped exercising. 
and I medicated it with alcohol and YouTube. So one of the things that happened when I actually got into motion, my brother and I um, had a, an amazing interaction and, um, you know, he couldn't sleep. Sleep deprivation was his biggest enemy, which I'm guessing is true for anybody that's going through this on this listening right now. It's it's all about sleep. And, and Mark was sleeping on an average two hours a night. And so finally, um, our family counselor called me and, and she said, you know, listen, Mark or Todd, I'm really concerned about Mark's life. Like he needs to sleep or something could really go awry here. And so she gave me the name of a, uh, of a healthcare professional who could help him with sleep medication. And I'll tell you, Rick, the moment he, he took that, he slept 12 hours the first night, he was a different human. But the thing that was so amazing about that healthcare professional is the one thing he was adamant about is, Mark, you have to start exercising whether you feel like it or not. It's not negotiable. You have to exercise. Yeah. And, and Mark did. And, and so for his well-being, he did, even though he didn't feel like it at all. But it definitely lifted his, his spirits up and he became a different person. Uh, he started writing, he, he started digging himself out of the hole that he was in. So, yeah, yeah. My kids were great. Uh, my, my wife was heroic. She, she did a great job of, of shielding my younger kids at that time from my pain. And about every two weeks, Rick, uh, I, I would do something which was pretty fun. I, I'd grab a bottle of wine and, and, and Springsteen's uh, Nebraska CD, and I'd go into my closet, and, and I'd have a, the greatest pity party you've ever seen. And I felt really sorry for myself about every two weeks. But it was so cleansing, and, and I didn't want my kids to see me that way. So I, I hid from that. But, but the value in that is, you know, my experience is what we resist persists. So if I resist feeling sad, then it's just going to persist. If I let it come through me, it, it will work its way through. And, and that's what I did pretty habitually, and it, it certainly helped. You know, I'm not a big fan of pity parties, but I am I am a fan of if you're going to have a pity party, make it a damn good one. <laughs> go for it. Like, really, really go for it. And get it all out, you know. It's just, uh, it's it's in that resistance. That's where we just prolong it, at least in my experience. So, but my kids, yeah, they were young enough that they, you know, they were all involved in their sports. And I don't think um, they had a, a full awareness of what was going on with that. He just wasn't wasn't really available. <laughs> he just kind of checked out. Yeah, which it was different because I'm not that kind of dad, but I was definitely then. I just didn't have the energy or the or the wherewithal to, to really be with them in in the way they needed to be with. Yeah, but fortunately, my wife was, and, and and they had other activities. Yeah, and the exercise piece, you know, you bring up is it's it's so mission critical. You know, my kids' counselors used to say to them all the time, "You got to get into your body," and. And yeah. what he what he meant was get out of your head and get into your body. So you know, as you're as you're you know working or doing sports or doing whatever, working out, you know, you're you're focused on your body and you know maybe the pain of the workout in my case. Um, but when you're when you're focused there, you're you know it gives your unconscious mind a chance to to kind of work through things and your conscious mind a chance to shut down and and rest a little bit. And I think that's. That's really critical. No doubt. You know, and, and, and you know, kind of using Mark as a cue, I, I immediately started <laughs> getting into exercise action too. Um, and like, yeah, that is really so important. And, you know, finding solace, I, I did a lot of river therapy in, in that spring and fished a lot. And that really brought me back into connecting to my spirit. And because um, that's where I, I tend to do it the most is when I'm in the river. 
and uh, you know, just working myself out of that hole. It was uh, it was a series of exercise, doing these things I love to do, and, and but most importantly, being in action and and taking that action to get my car that first time, and then being part of something bigger than myself and putting all my focus on my brother's well-being. That really helped, and also be you know moving into acceptance, uh, for sure. So, what prompted you to start speaking and coaching? Well, you know, so this is where, <laughs> this is where fear has gripped my soul. I, I you know, if I'm being honest, Rick, I've played small a lot in my life, and um, and every time I do, you can hear this sucking sound in my spirit. Uh, the, my truth is, and the truth is, I wanted to do the work I'm doing now for the better part of 15 years inside of working in my family's business. But I just didn't have the courage. Um, fear got in the way a lot, uh, and the fear was I'm not going to be good enough. How, how, I mean, I'm fear of failure. All those things that hold us back or hold me back anyway from from playing a big big game, playing all out. And I wanted to speak and and and, and coach for a long, long time. Some of it was on my own volition, but um, my two dearest friends on the planet. One is a national speaker, and one is a very high level coach. And they've been after me to do this for years. And again, I just yeah, that sounds great, guys. But you know, I don't know how it's going to go. And I got three kids to feed. That was my that was my go to out that I gave myself. I've got three kids to to feed. So you know, I so just you're gonna keep blame the kids. Of course, yeah. I'll just keep playing small. Blame my kids and my and my condition of my life. You know, if only. That's one of my least favorite phrases on the planet. If only. Yeah. And, and I said that a lot. If only I didn't have three kids, man. Well, first of all, I'd be a rock star because I would have been a professional musician. If only I didn't have kids when I really got into music but that that's a lie i just never committed to being a professional musician <laughs> and then i had the story if only i didn't have three kids and there were all these responsibilities i could really dive into speaking and coaching um but that's just a giant out like i said and it's 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 all fear-based and so um when i go out and talk to people about living inside of fear i can i can say from a first-hand experience what that does to the human spirit is pretty pretty icky for sure at least for my experience, at least for my spirit, for sure. Well, so how, so how did you break out of that fear cycle? Well, you know, that's a funny story. So I, I you know, we lose the business and here's my opportunity. So, um, you know, one of my favorite distinctions that I, I work inside of is the, the, the distinction between being interested versus committed. And, and it's a vast difference. And, and so I come out of the bankruptcy and I'm interested in doing this work and so I start doing it I start speaking and I start coaching and and it's fantastic and I love it and I remember my mom called me one one day when I was living or when I was up in home in Steamboat and she said Todd so how's this whole thing going I said oh my god mom I love it I this is just is what I'm meant to do I love it I love it all except for one thing and she said what's that and she said I said well I haven't been paid for any of it but it's awesome it's really great <laughs> I'm not gonna get bills but but I'm on purpose now. And so I was still just interested, Rick. I wasn't committed. And then my friend who is a you know, high-level coach called me and he said, hey, Todd, there's a guy in Phoenix that's offering an apprenticeship. Um, and, and I think you'd be a good fit. I think you should throw your hat in the ring. And his name was Steve Chandler. And so I looked him up on the Internet. and uh, He sounded great. I read one of his books quickly. And then, and then I, I called him and I threw my hat in the ring. And we had this awesome conversation. And and Steve loved that I'd just been through a bankruptcy, and he loved that I was a professional musician because that would make the speaking thing much easier. So he chose me, which was extremely flattering for about the first 45 seconds. And then Steve asked me a very important question. He said, so how do you want to handle the payment? 
and in my mind, I was his apprentice. So, I mean, that means uh, to me, that's a free thing. And, and so I was too embarrassed to say anything. And I said, well, uh, how do you normally handle it? And he said, well, you know, normally people just send me a check for 50,000 up front. And I'm like, oh my God, in my mind, I'm just <laughs> freaking out. Freaking out. And I said, oh, my God, uh, okay, well, is there any other options? <laughs> uh, do you, any other way? And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, what if I gave you half down and then I, you know, we did the rest in payments? And, and he said, well, um, I've never done that way, but, you know, I'll consider it. Uh, if you can get me a, a check for 25 grand, uh, you know, by the end of the week, yep, we'll, we'll go that way. I'm like, okay. So I hung up the phone and, and uh, I, was, I was just beside myself. Uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I was embarrassed. Two, I, I was uh, really, um, I was just really bummed because I really, really wanted to work with Steve. I could see how he could cut off three or four years in my development. So um, I thought, well, what could I do? You know, and so you're, only, you're for, only what twenty five thousand short. Yeah, right. Well, I just came out of bankruptcy. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a, nickels to rub together, and so I. Um, I called one of my best friends who is a, a venture capitalist, uh, and his name is Kevin. And I called Kevin. And I said, Kevin, I, I've got a crazy question for you. Uh, what's that, Todd? I said, well, have you ever invested in a person? And he said, well, no, but what did you have in mind? I said, well, me. <laughs> and he said, well, what do you need? And I said, gulp 15 grand. And so he said, uh, well, yeah, I can do that. And so when do you need it? And I said, well, this week. He said, well, come on over and I'll write you a check. So I did. And then I scraped together the rest of the 10. And uh, when I wrote Steve Chandler that check on a Friday, I was literally shaking. I, I really thought I was going to vomit. I was so scared. And what was interesting, though, Rick, is I wrote that check on a Friday. And by the following Wednesday, I had four paying clients. I, and the only thing I did different was commit. I, I, nothing else happened different. I didn't do anything different. I didn't call anybody in, but people just showed up and said, you know, I'm ready to work with you. What's, what's the cost? And so I had four paying clients and, you know, I, I'm not a big woo woo guy, but I would say this about that, that in my experience, um, the universe really, really gets behind commitment. It never gets behind things that we're interested in. It's only when we commit, that's when the doors start opening up. That's when opportunities come to you that you never saw and that's exactly what happened to me so it is one of my favorite distinctions the interested committed one and 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 once i committed things uh started rapidly rapidly um going straight uphill and and i my my year with steve was phenomenal it was awesome and uh, i learned so much from him both as you know in professionally but personally as well and he's just a great human being and amazing writer if anybody's listening to this podcast, um, you know, I highly recommend Reinventing Yourself is just a, is just a fabulous book to read as a leader. It's just awesome. And so um, that that's kind of what turned me into this new career and, and, and turned me on to it and, and had me going guns a blazing. So that that was the turning point, so to speak. Well, I'm a huge believer in the commitment piece. Uh, the yeah. way I describe it to people is, you know, you can stand at home plate and watch the balls go by and nothing happens. But the moment you swing, the universe gets behind you. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's how I got to San Diego. I mean, you know, I was living in Buffalo. 
First of all, I'm sorry, but yes, uh, go ahead. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. It, totally kidding. <laughs> well, you know what? It's a great place if that's it, where you yeah. want to be. It yeah. just wasn't where I wanted to be. I didn't like the cold. Yeah. I didn't like the snow. You know, I was trying to run a business. It wasn't conducive to that. And, and uh, you know, I, I just wasn't happy. But as soon as I made a decision to move to San Diego and I chose the city and I gave myself a deadline, the universe opened up. I had all kinds of opportunities open up that got me here in six weeks. It was, it was just mind-boggling. And, uh, you know, I've had other examples of that in my life. That was the most dramatic one. But, you know, it's just when you commit, when you choose, you know, the universe opens up. I mean, that's, you know, that's what's happened with the Heart of Leaders program. It was just an idea, and we, and we started. And as soon as we started, Absolutely. as soon as we started, we had clients coming, and we had, we had faculty coming saying, you know, I want to be part of this faculty. And it's it just, it's been an amazing journey and that I've met probably the nicest people I've ever met in my entire life through this program. It's just extraordinary human beings. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's about committing. Yeah, it really is to me. And, you know, I, it, just looking back in my life, it's always been that, that even though I never saw it that way, I'd like, that was the beauty of Steve. He, he's so great at illuminating and pulling out the simplest premises in the planet you've been living in your whole life but never really looked at it that way and i just love that that's he's just powerful in that way and just laying those distinctions out there and it's just like wow that's so simple but so true <laughs> so that that was my big one there is interested versus committed and, and once i committed off i was on my way and and, and having a blast and you know the other thing in all of this is you know for for only 47 years I languished in the world of not living into my purpose I, I never really I, I never even sniffed it I, I mean I love working with my family actually working with my family members but I never loved my job not even remotely there was no connection to my purpose and and you know so what is the turning point also really being courageous enough to go for what you want that was that was a turning point for me bring the ships to the shore and saying, you know what, I'm all in. I don't know how this is going to work out. This 25 grand, this 50 grand is a giant commitment. I've never done any of this before, but you know what, this is what I want to do. And I've played small most of my life and I'm sick of it. So I'm going to go for it. And, you know, the person that deserves the most credit in all this is my wife who had the courage to go with me because that's damn scary. You know, we just come out of bankruptcy. Now you're going to do what? You're going to write a guy that you don't even know a check for $50,000. Are you insane? Like the courage that she displayed is, is remarkable. And, uh, you know, it, uh, really, honestly, if there's one person that deserves all the credit, it's my wife, not me. She, she was the courageous one. She's the one that said yes when she could have easily said no. And if she would have said no, I would have said, okay, I get it. And maybe secretly I wanted her to say no. Did somebody please talk me out of this insane move? <laughs> it was so habitual to play small. Rick, I didn't know what to do when I was actually playing large. Yeah. So, well, anyway. I think she must have seen that. Yeah, she did. She wanted me to do this work for as long as my friends did. Yeah. I wasn't meant to sell clothing for heaven's sakes. Nothing wrong with selling clothing. It just didn't, it had nothing, no connection to my purpose at all. Right. I knew I was meant to do something bigger than that. Well, I'm sure that a lot of the people listening here today are thinking about what their big game is that they should be playing, and they're afraid to swing. And, and 
it's just so critical that you swing. You just got to step up to this plate and swing. And uh, yeah, yeah, just make it happen. Absolutely. You know what's the worst you know, thing? You the... you're, you're going to go bankrupt, right? And right, right. <laughs> Been there, done that. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. You know, in Silicon Valley, they they value bankruptcies. They say, "Good, you've had a bankruptcy. You, what'd you learn? Tell me about that." Good, you know, then, then they're ready to invest because they know you're serious and committed. Well, I'm saying you don't know how to run a business until you've lost one well, at some level. Yeah, but I mean, you know, a lot of people, you know, they're worried about the stigma of bankruptcy. Right. And, and in right. Silicon Valley, it's a badge of honor. You know, it's really a point of view about it. Yes. And of course, you know, as as you said, it's a mindset. It's how you choose to hold it. Yeah, but yeah. Um, you know, we all fear not being enough. And but if you don't step up to the plate and swing, you're never going to find out. No, and and you know, I did a lot of not finding out most of my life. <laughs> so, yeah, and I believe me, I still let it get in the way. I'm not saying I'm impervious to it anymore. I I still let that little voice creep in, and, and you know, and when it does, that's when. Um, I can go down that rabbit hole. The good news is through the training I've received from Steve and just in my own life, I choose out of that mindset so much quicker than I ever used to. And I think that's one of the, the keys of life. It's not going to the victim side. That's not the key. It's how quickly can I choose out of it? That's once I'm in there. How? What am I doing to right the ship and get myself back in the creative mode, back into the present mode, back into the loving mode? I haven't really spoken a whole lot about love in this whole conversation, but you know, um, this Thursday, I'm doing a, a motivational concert combining music and, and speaking, and it's called The Vital Choice. And to me, moment by moment, there is really only one choice for me. I'm not, I, this is my truth, not the truth, but my truth. But to me, as I work with my own life, in any moment, I'm either coming from fear or I'm coming from love. Yeah, those are really the only two places I'm coming from. And and, and man, when I'm coming, when I choose love over fear, I'm at my highest self. And, and when I do the the opposite, man, I, I just I'm I'm in my own way. And um, and I've done a lot of both, but I'm habitually choosing love over fear more now. And it, it just is so much, just so much more fun. I'm at my highest self a lot more, and, and it just you know, so the, all the results are there too. So that's the vital choice to me is. Uh, on Thursday night, I'm just going to challenge people, you know, what if you just chose it 5 or 10% more? Not some huge leap, but what if you just chose to, to come from love 5%? Who would you be then? I mean, you know, one of my favorite questions I'm asking my coaching clients right now is what's the most loving thing you could do right now in this, with this scenario, whatever that is for you in your life, right. whether you're resenting somebody or you're hating your boss, your job, what's the most loving thing you could do right now? It's a, it's a fun question. Like, like, what are you talking about? And I don't love my boss. I'm not. It's not loving your boss. It's about loving what you're up to, or loving your purpose enough to transcend how that person's occurring in your life. It's, and why it's not that kind love of, your boss? Yeah. Why not? Why not, why not sure? love them yeah. even even when they're abusive? Right. right. Seriously. Yeah, totally. But, you know what? No. How does it change things when you when right. you look and say how much pain does that person have to be in totally. to behave that way? Yeah. And and how much. Um, does he come from that place of not being enough to to overwhelm the situation with domineering or whatever that is for them? Yeah, yeah couldn't agree. I mean, you know, they're living in fear. You know. Oh how, God, yeah. How, how do you hugely? You know, how do you, how do you help them out of that fear? I think didn't Gandhi say it? You know, Be the change you want to see in others. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, but it's you know, it takes the courage to love. Yes, and, totally. It's and particularly very 
particularly in a corporate setting, you know, we, you know, we just can't use that word. You know, HR will be all over you. Oh no, I know. Yeah. And yet I keep going out and using that word and it's amazing. <laughs> I'm yeah, having but, a bl- Well, you have to use that word. It's yeah, I'm having a blast. Works. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I mean, I mean, that's why I call this a movement. I, I, I think there is a movement yeah. afoot. I think people are starting to get it. I think, you know, that people are starting to say this has to be the way it is. It, it just cannot be any other way and still work. Yeah, you know, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and uh, just, boy, that maybe that's another podcast, but just, um, just, what I've been seeing and, and especially, and you know, it happens across the board, but especially inside of corporate America and what people are willing to do to, um, yeah, to, to, to be successful, so to speak. Uh, and, and you know, that, that's a funny one for me. I, I think there's a really big distinction and the distinction is, um, the difference between being successful and successfully being is usually miles apart. And for me, it's all about successfully between, being. Yeah. So I just don't want to. I want to draw that distinction: being successful versus successful, successfully, successfully being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To me, that's the gig. Like literally, uh, I think being successful is 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 a is a fool's errand. I don't even know what that means. It it means so many different things. Well, so many it, other. Yeah, it means something external. We've chosen yes. external markers for our success. It's going to be position. It's going to be salary. Yeah. It's going to be the car I drive, the home I live in, whatever those external markers are the suits i wear right but that's not successful being in our parlance in the work we do rick it's called living an outside in world uh way of being versus an inside out which is successfully being to me it's when we're living inside out when we're coming from love and and coming from a knowing that we're always enough that's a different way than depending on the outside opinions of others to form my own opinion and and that you know that that is um that's the crux of the matter right there. And I just, yeah, it breaks my heart watching all these people just grinding away. And in, in doing so, what they're giving up on, on the other side. Because, you know, when you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to another. And typically that no is a lot of times to the family or to the kids or to yourself. You're just not working out as much as you say you want to. You're, you know, you're not going for that bike ride. You're not going to play volleyball. You're not doing anything that you love to do to connect to your spirit. You're just, you're just that desperate ploy to, to, to be successful. Well, and I think so, in some cases they're punishing themselves for not being enough. Yes. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, um, it's heartbreaking for me because I see it. I mean, every single leadership team in particular, when you work with them, you ask them, you know, what's one thing you want in your life that you don't currently have predominantly the answer is time. Yeah. Time is time to spend with my kids time to, you know, for myself and, you know, it's just an, it's it's fun to ask them that question and then say, well, you know, so time is the thing. And have you ever done the math on that? And they say, what do you mean? I said, well, you're on salary. And they say, well, yeah. Well, how many hours are you working for free in a week? And then you multiply it and you come to like 45 days a year. You're giving away for free. What could you do with 45 you know days a year with your kids or yourself or your spouse or whatever? And the inverse is also true. So if you if you yeah. if you took that family time first, if you took the time to work out first, if you yeah. took the time to get centered first, you don't need to work those extra hours because you're going to be Got productive it. when you're there. Yeah, yeah. I'm working with one company right now who's 
when I, when I started with them, they were all working over 60 hours a week. And, I, you know, obviously, I know you know the studies that show that anything over 50, there's this giant cliff that you fall right. off in terms of productivity. And so it's been really fun. That, and to their credit, the leadership, the two owners, that they're really allowing people to cut back on their hours. And what they're seeing is a greater productivity because they're not all burned out. They're actually yeah, spending course. time kids it's amazing well you, you know i know the stuff it's just right? you, you, you yeah. focus, yeah. Focus yeah, totally. on the things yeah. that are mission critical that are going to move the needle instead of all the nonsense totally i know i know we got off topic there i apologize but it's just it's all right no, yeah. I love it. anyway this is, this is exactly what i wanted yeah, to do today I and uh i i do want yeah. to wrap this one up but um i'd love to have a commitment from you to come back and and share more of your wisdom would you be willing to do of that? Of course. I, 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 yeah, I'd love to. I, I'd like to share one final uh, story with you, if I could. It yeah, kind absolutely. of ties it all together. You know, so uh, when when we were going through bankruptcy, um, Mark and I, my brother and I, spent a lot of time in the back of the warehouse um, wishing and hoping that uh, this an inv- angel investor would come and take us out and, and make it all go away and, and make all the pain go away and, and just put us right back where we needed to be and Man, we were the best wishers and hopers you've ever seen, and, and we were really good at it. The problem is that there's no outcome and there's no result produced when you, you're wishing you hope. So ultimately, nobody ever came, and we lost the business, and, and that was good to notice. And so then I start working with Steve, and uh, I, you know, I shot off like a rocket right out, of the, right out of the chute, and things were going great. But about seven months in, I, I, I kind of slowed down in my business, and, and so I was on the phone with him one day, and... And um, I started hinting around to Stephen, and I mean hinting. I never made a bold request, never asked him for what I wanted, which would drive Steve crazy and did. And so he, he listened for a little bit, and then he caught on. He, he says, you know, Todd, I think I know where you're going with this, and, and I just have one thing to share with you. And, and I said, what's that, Steve? And he said, well, Todd, um, no one is coming. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, I mean no one is coming. And, and I, I just sat back for a minute and I thought, well, no one is coming. Oh, 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 <laughs> no one is coming. And, Nobody's and coming to save you. No one is coming to make me happier, simpler, my life simpler, easier, better. Um, it's, it was just like, it, would, it just literally shifted my life. It's a profoundly, you know, it's one of the most profound ownership phrases I've ever heard, no one is coming. Of course, this yeah. whole gig called my life is up to me and everything. In, and I'm on the cause and the matter of my life and everything, in it, whether it be my marriage isn't working, my business isn't working, I'm, my, I'm estranged from my kid, whatever that is, I'm the cause and the, my mat, and the matter of that. You know, I know you and I talked about it, had a good laugh at it. You know, if I ask people in, in, in a general way, are you 100% responsible for your happiness? Most people would say, absolutely. And then if I ask them, well, you are you responsible for your unhappiness? Most of them say, absolutely not. <laughs> right. It's just, exactly. How could that be true? I mean, it's just so funny. So anyway, my, I guess my parting words on this podcast is no one is coming. You own it. You got it. Thanks again for having me, Rick. It's, it's, it's always a pleasure. That was spectacular. Thank you, Todd. Hey, buddy. Would you like to meet Todd in person and hang out? You can. Just make the decision to join us for the next Heart of Leaders training program in Denver. Call us right now at 858-248-3162 or go to heartofleaderspodcast.com. 
We believe that Heart of Leaders is a movement started by boomers, accelerated by Gen Xers, and demanded by millennials. To learn more, find us online at heartofleaderspodcast.com, where we blog, post articles, and book reviews, and respond to your questions. We invite you to join the conversation.